The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Good morning, Life Centre Church. Uh, my name is Gareth, um, and it has been an interesting last couple of weeks, has it not? Um, the book of Exodus feels only too appropriate with the plague from which we've been suffering, the floods which are rising. Next week, we'll probably have some locusts or frogs, or perhaps the Brisbane River will turn into blood, though I can't imagine it being any dirtier than it already is. But today, we're still in the build-up to those plagues. We're in Exodus chapters 5 and 6, and the question which looms over these chapters is read in the first two verses, which we'll bring up on the screen. Let's look at them together. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, and here's the key question, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? We've heard over the last few weeks, we have seen this people of Israel who are now living in Egypt and have become this sort of tier of slaves in that culture. Kylam reminded us in the first week that God's promise was under threat, but a few good women led to God's promise being kept alive. Moses was saved from being killed by the Egyptians and ended up in the palace raised as a prince. But in their suffering, God heard the cries of his people and set up this plan to deliver them. Moses, this messed up murderer, fled to the wilderness and at Mount Sinai met God for the first time, who called himself, I am, Yahweh. So the question that looms over this chapter is the same one that looms over Pharaoh's and our lives and the one that the world asks as well, who is this Lord? What should we do in the face of God's commands, in the face of God's presence? Who is he that we should hear his voice? And as we ponder that question, let us pray. Ask the Lord for help and then let his word speak to us. Father, as we're walking through Exodus seeing stories of the oppressed and hearing from compassion. Lord, may we have our hearts softened to hear both the state that we're in and the state that the world is in. Father, may you sharpen our minds to understand, may you soften our hearts to receive, and you may, may you open our lives that they may be changed for your glory and our good. Amen. So, who is the Lord? The question that Pharaoh was asking says everything it needs to. Pharaoh in this story believes himself to be a god. He believes that it is his birthright to rule with the hand of God. And for him, and for so many in these ancient cultures, legitimate and divinity, legitimate divinity and power looks a particular way. It looks like splendor, glory, power. It sure doesn't look like a couple of ratty prophets who've just been playing Survivor Sinai. When we see the the word Lord in the Bible, we'll see this little table come up. You'll notice that it's written in two different ways. One is 
with a difference between capital and lowercase letters, and the other is it all capitalized. The first is this word often used, Adonai. In simple terms, it means Lord, King, it denotes majesty. It could be used of God, but also of men, also of others. The second is this word, Y-H-W-H. The reason that that word isn't fully spelt out is because the Jewish people were so reverent of God's name that they didn't want to speak it out loud by accident in case they used it in vain. So they put in this placeholder with the vowels taken out. The exact pronunciation we're not certain of. It was thousands of years ago when they did it, but the most likely pronunciation is Yahweh. In other times and in other places, different translators have tried to flesh it out. That's where Jehovah has come from, people putting sort of different vowels in between those letters. In different, in different languages, but Yahweh or Yahweh is probably a better rendering of that word. So when you read Exodus, the whole Old Testament, have an awareness of that capitalized word, Lord. That's where they're using this different name for God, but it's not just a different name for God or king. It's not arbitrary, but it's this invitation into intimacy, which we'll see later in the text. So, Who is this Lord? In Pharaoh's mind, this Yahweh isn't even in the same league as him. He's Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh that we think it was is most likely Ramses II. Ramses ruled for just shy of 70 years, which was ages, um, and was reportedly this super proud, powerful man. Just like all Pharaohs, he claimed to be divine, but had experienced significant opposition to his rule in the early years. In the fifth year of his reign, he attempted to defeat the Hittites to take control of the region of Syria, which people are still fighting over today. The Hittites, however, successfully executed this ambush of him and his guards and ended his attempt at conquest. But for Ramses, this pharaoh, accepting defeat wasn't an option and it actually had to be spun as this miraculous story of how he single-handedly avoided capture and death due to his divine combat prowess. And historians believe that this event, five years into his reign, left his ego so bruised in such a way that it set off this unprecedented building campaign to justify his rule. And unquestionably, The Hebrews, this free labor force, were an integral part of this planned expansion. And so if you were Pharaoh, why would you believe this pair of Hebrews who want to rob you of your workforce? So let's have a look at the next part of the text. And so when he said, let my people go, how does the king of Egypt respond? The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Remember, there may have been as many as two million Hebrews that were Ramses' ticket to glory via construction. That same day, reading on verses 6 through 9, the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for for they are idle. Therefore, and because they're idle, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. 
Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. The Egyptian economy was built on the back of slaves, and Pharaoh has just doubled their work. Uh, in, In the last couple of works, I watched this interesting episode of Grand Designs. And I know that as I say that, I'll have gone up in some of your estimation and down in some of your others. But it was actually interesting. It was actually, I could, yeah, I can tell I'm getting older as it's just like, oh, Kevin McLeod, what a dream boat. Um, uh, this, so there was this guy here who was building this incredible palace out of this material called cob. And when thinking about divine things, this guy's forearms, whoa, they were divine. Because what, what this guy would use is you'd get this mud, stir it all up with mud and clay, and then you'd lay it out in the sun waiting for it to give it strength. What that process relied upon was that straw to give a degree of structural integrity to the material. What has happened here is that Pharaoh has taken the straw which he normally would have provided, asked them to source their own, and then still produce as much as before. They'd been tasked with the impossible. And how did the Hebrews respond? We've been seeing how they're responding over the course of this book. I'm sure they responded with grace, mercy, and poise. Let's just read what they did in verses 20 and 21. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. How did the Hebrews respond? They responded by cursing who they believed had brought this hardship upon them. Moses became public enemy number one. They were probably spitting in his flat white, cutting him off, stopping him from getting to his favorite park. And and remember, in our previous weeks, we have seen this insecurity that Moses has, that he's not stoked about having this task. This response from his people and from Pharaoh is confirming everything that he thought about himself up to this point. And we read in verses 22 and 23, Then Moses turned to the Lord Yahweh and said, O Lord. Notice how he turned to Yahweh and then said Adonai. He's like not using the intimate name which God's introduced himself by, but has used his title instead. He's leaning back. Why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? He's making it about himself. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. It's curious how Moses is reflecting on how what his faithfulness has given him. While reticent and fearful, he believes that he has been stepping out into what Yahweh has been calling him to. And I think that this experience of stepping out in faithfulness is similar to what many of us experience as Christians. If you're here for the first time, perhaps you come to Christianity with this expectation that this is self-help. That through following the wise teachings of Jesus, your life will go well. But the question is, what does go well or the good life really mean? Because oddly, the only thing that was sort of explicitly promised by Jesus to his disciples was suffering. Perhaps you are looking for a divine direction, hoping that this faith business might be able to make you more able to deal with the travails of existence, perhaps the monotony of your work, of unfulfilled life goals, of relationships, of children, when you have this divine purpose and direction. Perhaps you are a lifelong believer, but some days your faith feels more tenuous than it did in your youth when you first discovered your faith. 
Perhaps belief feels more like a struggle than a blessing. Your attempts at being the perfect mother or father who does all of the things is exhausting. Making sure that you're at work providing for the family or remaining home to rear your children, disciples or demons, not really sure which they are, as well as being engaged in their school life, attending all the meetings, volunteering in the creche or the youth ministry, attending life group, making sure you're getting your spiritual two and five every day through prayer and Bible reading, at the same time trying to live the rest of the Christianized Australia-American dream of a big house, Toyota Prado, jet ski, private school, and quarterly holidays at the beach. And then every Sunday you're coming up and there's this guy stumping up the front, opening up the Bible who's trying to draw out the truths of scripture and you're barely keeping your eyes open. Sometimes it feels like this life is trying to build bricks without straw. And when there is hardship or questions asked of God, he rarely starts Strangely, with an answer to the circumstances. He first grounds his answer in his character. We see this with Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount, which we heard some teachings from earlier this year. To paraphrase, do not be anxious about your life or food or other material things. Consider the lilies of the field or the birds of the air. Your Father feeds and clothes them. He knows what you need. You can trust Him. He's your Father. And it must be super frustrating for those who are saying to God, come on, tell me what I'm meant to do. How am I meant to carry on? Where am I supposed to go? But there seems to be this really common move for God. Why? Because it forces us to lean closer in. To see that what we need is not so much the gifts, but the giver. We don't need our circumstances changed so much as to have our hearts and our minds brought into line with him, with the one who made those hearts and minds. So, in response to Moses throwing a little tantrum, who does Yahweh say that he is? Over the next verses, Yahweh gives Moses and the people of Israel an indication of what his character is. He highlights three things about himself and then has them connected to three actions or promises. One, that he is relational, so he promises to be intimate and fatherly. Two, he is a covenant keeper. He will give them the land that he promised. He'll give them a home. And he is compassionate, so he will make them free. As we read on in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. There is this point here which is drawing together a couple of passages that we've looked at, both from today and both from last week, where God is progressively revealing his intimate, personal nature. And this is in contrast to Pharaoh, who while he is a person, he is not personal with his people. When we compare and contrast Pharaoh and Yahweh, one is distant One promises to be known. One is insecurely, desperately trying to portray himself as so divine that he builds these monuments to himself. The other is so secure in his divinity that he will not only be known as Adonai, but as Yahweh, not only as king, but as father. We actually see throughout the book of Exodus and the narrative of scripture as a whole, revealing himself more and more as father. And we see in that second text there in chapter four, then you say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
there is this growing theme of this furious, intense parental love from God to his chosen people. He starts this list of promises, not with the tangible, but with the relational. Not with what he will do, but with who he is to them. As we move on to the next point, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. God is a covenant keeper. He promises them a home. What the next thing in the passage, he's promising that he keeps his promises. He reminds them of their promise to no longer be foreigners and out of place in Egypt, but he will deliver them to Canaan. As we move to that last point, God's saying that he is compassionate. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Finally, in this verse 5, he reminds them that he is not blind to their suffering. He has heard his people's groanings. And I imagine this groaning to both be this emotional groaning, but this groaning you could hear from a wooden bridge when it's barely holding up its load, the creaking of a structure too heavy laden. Yahweh is telling them that he is compassionate. And as we see in this next text, he promises to make them free. God has been reminding them his relational, covenant-keeping and compassionate nature and promises them relationship, land, and freedom. God reminds Moses first, who even Moses, as the prophet who has heard from God, is struggling with his faith and belief before giving him the words to say, Now let's read these spectacular and stirring words from verses 6 through 8. God saying to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery, promising freedom to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. He's promising relationship. And you shall know that I am the Lord Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land, the home, that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. And how does he finish? I am the Lord Yahweh. He grounds his promises in the end with who he is. Oh, love that text. Gives, gives me goosebumps. Um, and how did the people of Israel respond? Were they inspired? Did they hear this beautiful exposition of Yahweh's character and truth? Did they have ears to hear? Verse 9 tells us, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. When it comes to dealing with those who are suffering throughout the Bible, it unfurls this beautiful way of offering aid. We see in the New Testament most explicitly stated in James that when someone tells you of their suffering, it falls short of the calling of Jesus to just be like, well, that, that sucks. I'll, I'll pray for you at, at some point, um, but yeah, it's just really tough, isn't it? But we're actually compelled to offer aid, to help that person get their head back up above water so that they may freely breathe the sweet air of God's grace. Organizations like Compassion do this so well, and perhaps that is what you are being called to today.
to hear the plight and the need of those with broken spirits and provide for their earthly needs. But ultimately, this story of Moses and the Exodus is one which mirrors several important themes and acts as this small image or mirror or shadow of a larger story. In every hardship, there is this invitation to experience God's formation. But we see that not everyone, even those who are chosen, can always hear it. God's message to them is perfect. He is relational, compassionate, and covenant-keeping. But how can we now, looking back at this narrative, be encouraged by this text, knowing how it ends? Because he followed through. Not to spoil the rest of the book, but, uh, but you know, he does it. Woo. Um, we, he, not, but not only in the Exodus... We have a God who here promised to be a father to his people, to see them flourish, find a home and be free. But now here we aren't enslaved by Egypt, but we are enslaved by brokenness, by sin, by our fallen nature. While we are created to be in right relationship with God, for those who know the story, we walked with him in the beginning, in the garden, exposed. But that fall, that brokenness, that sin separated us. But we see here and we see held up throughout the whole narrative of Scripture that we have a God who is relational, who is covenant-keeping, that is compassionate. Yahweh, who is the great I Am, promised to be with us. Through the Christ event of Jesus, we have this better Moses, a prophet who didn't stumble and fall. We have Emmanuel, God with us who made a way through his life, death, and resurrection, that he is now with us and promises us us to bring us home. He is Yahweh. He is the great I Am. He is Emmanuel. He is with us now. And because he is a relational, promise-keeping, and compassionate God, we who are looking back at this micro-narrative shadow can see in the larger narrative of history that he has promised and will give us a father, freedom, and a home. Let's pray before we take communion. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.